Good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for uh, braving this wonderful weather we're having here today and coming out on a Wednesday to our uh, monthly program, which are typically on Thursdays, which we will be back to our Thursdays then come, I think, next month and for the rest of the year. Updated calendars are out there for the taking, and everything is on the website. I'm going to turn it over to Margie to talk about uh, this month being Lemons to Lemonade and some of the events that we've had and then coming up uh, from Margie's perspective. Hi, everybody. I'm Margie Sweeney. I'm from Bliss Public Relations, and I am on the Communications and Economic Development Committees at Cornet. Um, I am talking about Lemons to Lemonade Month, which, of course, we're all a part of because we're here. Um, we wanted to have a month where we talk about how to make the most out of the economy, which none of us like but <laughs> are trying to do the best with. Um, part of that has been this luncheon and the program we're about to uh, about to experience. Um, but the other side of that is that we are doing two evening events um, sponsored by the programs and the learning committees. Um, Challenging Economy Digital World are uh, two evening events. One took place on May 5th. The next one is next Tuesday, May 19th. Um, Stephanie kind of introduced them a little bit earlier. But what I want to stress is that if you were not at the event on the 5th, you are more than welcome on the 19th. You have not missed anything. Um, these evening events are talking about how we use social media to combat the economy that we're in in a way that's relevant to corporate real estate. So if any of you in this room have asked yourself the question, what the heck is Twitter? <laughs> how is Facebook relevant to this business? That's crazy. Um, those questions will be answered. Um, and there will also be a special focus on the 19th on the use of um, online networking techniques for executives in transition. Um, whether you are one, know one, think you might be one, don't want to think about being one, but think you should anyway, um, there will be a focus on that on the 19th. Um, panelists that night will be Adam Meek, myself, Sharon Crone, and Gary Pines. So um, hope to see as many of you there as can make it. Thank you, Margie. Yes, last uh, week's event was outstanding. Great hands-on interaction, so we encourage you to come on out. It was a, it was a great night in a great space, and uh, you'll come away with a lot, uh, a lot of takeaways. We always look for that kind of you know, positive spin, and all the programs that we do here on a monthly basis, you hear enough about recession and negativity in the media, so we always look for that positive story, which we've been doing, uh, bringing about the, the positive things that happen with change, uh, personal change, change management a couple months ago. Um, related to Capital One. Also last, last month, the positives that came out of site, lo site location strategies and business uh, location strategies and how uh, what's changed in that environment. And this month we talk about innovation and uh, how and what's happening, um, how the recession is breeding this innovation. Again, my name is uh, Dan Albrecht. I'm with Leopardo along with um, Jeanette Outlaw with OFS Brands. We are the programs committee and always striving to put these programs together and at the end of these uh, sessions, we put together um, a little survey asking for your feedback. We've got uh, some great feedback so far. We listen to you. Uh, one of the topics that's on everybody's mind, again, is the uh, economy, the stimulus package. So we are putting a program together here a couple months out that will be touching on the last six months of the stimulus package and where we are moving forward. So uh, we encourage you to continue to uh, provide our feedback, and we'll be passing out the sheets at the end. Uh, remember, today is also being podcast, so um, they are downloadable at the end. And if you have any questions at the end, we ask you to raise your hand, and we will be bringing around a microphone so we can record. Today's topic, recession breeds innovation. As we were reaching out to some of these folks, I uh, connected with uh, Jim Malakowski. He's the uh, president and CEO of Ocean Tomo. Um, 
an intellectual capital merchant bank firm providing financial products and services related to intellectual property, ex expert testimony, valuation, investments, risk management, and transaction. Jim is the director of InventNow Incorporated, a subsidiary of National Invent Inventors Hall of Fame. He has 10 issued patents and an even large number of pending applications. I threw the, I, when, we, when we had an opportunity to meet with Jim, we threw that out there too, as I'm trying to get Tom then to come in. He's like, well, I only have eight patents to my name, but uh, I would be de delighted to be participation, participating in the event. Tom Stat is the associate partner of IDEO uh, and a member of IDEO's global relationship design community, helping to manage a number of IDEO's key client relationships and directing business development efforts across IDEO's practice areas. Prior to joining IDEO, Tom was a principal in a number of multinational architectural firms, working as a consultant in commercial real estate, and founded his own service marketing and communication strategy firm. He has been involved in the design of a number of corporate relocations, international airports, hospitals, schools, and cultural facilities in the United States, Asia, and Middle East. Tom has contributed to a wide range of innovation initiatives for IDEO clients, including AT&T, Chrysler, who probably needs some more innovation these days, right? Uh, 3M, Starbucks, Eli Lilly, McDonald's, American Express, and Bayer, among many others. And finally, last but not least, our moderator for the day who's going to wrap this all uh, together and bring it uh, back into the real estate uh, focus is uh, Phil Udegaard. He's the Executive Vice President at Transwestern. Phil specializes in professional portfolio advisory services and representation of real estate needs of corporate clients, not-for-profits, public sector, and high-technology firms. He's an expert at forming and managing strategic alliance and tenant representation. Phil provides organizational leadership for the Midwest Corporate Advisory Services and Tenant Representation Groups. Clients such as Ernst & Young, the CTA, Travelers, Aetna, Northern Trust Company, and Chicago School of Professional Psychology have benefited from Phil's extensive experience. Also, one last thing, it, uh, Transwest, most recently Transwestern was named as Crane's Best Places to Work. Without further ado, I'll turn it over to these speakers today. Thank you. Okay, we're getting our technology going. It advances on its own, if you go back. Okay. Well, good afternoon. I want to thank Dan for the, for the introductions. Uh, it, combined 17 patents, uh, I have zero patents. But I, I, I guess my claim to fame is I've survived in, in commercial real estate for a long, long time, and that's, that's worth something. I, we've been interviewing... Uh, motocross racers, Formula One drivers, uh, uh, skydivers, and who are all saying there's not enough risk and not enough uh, th thrill-seeking, so they want to come into commercial real estate right now. So our topic today is, is, is recession breeds innovation. There have been a whole lot of things on Bloomberg, on CNN, about just the reverse of that, that innovation bred a lot of, of the recession. And so this is not going to be about that. We're not going to be talking about derivatives. We're not going to be talking about uh, the subprime loans and some of the innovative things that were going on in fiscal and monetary policy. But um, I'm very excited about our, our, our panel today. I think uh, uh, they're going to bring a non-real estate perspective. What we'd like to do is have uh, Jim and Tom have some comments. I'll try and wrap it towards real estate. And then at the end of this, um, we're going to open it up for, for, for Q&A. Um, very relevant topic, I believe, for, for this group from a 
Cornette being really two sides of the table from a, from a corporate real estate executive perspective. Um, recently had a, uh, an internal panel where we were talking to a number of them, of our clients, and, and we, the question was raised, how are you measured? And they said, to a person. Uh, we have all these different things we're measured on, qualitative, quantitative things, but really there's only one thing today, and that's cost, cost reduction. And the low-hanging fruit's been picked. You know, you've, you've, you've consolidated, you've, you've uh, tried to sublease your, your uh, excess space, you've maybe gone back to the landlord, tried to, tried to uh, uh, renegotiate existing terms and add term in order to get lower, lower rates. So a lot of work that's been done on that. Now, how do you climb up the tree? And how do you get into more innovative things in terms of cost reduction? That's what we want to focus on today. For the service providers in the room, same kind of cost pressures. We're all uh, uh, under you know, our expenses. Everything are, are, are very high right now, revenues uh, being challenged. So we're under those kind of uh, cost pressures as well. But we're also under another kind of pressure, which is we've all in the last 10 years, many of us have consolidated companies into large national platforms. We've put the dots on the map. We have full service. We have... Uh, uh, <coughs> The marketing materials, our tools, all look about the same. We're looking for innovative ways to really differentiate ourselves. So hopefully today's discussion is going to spur some of those ideas. want to uh, start with something just to kind of put us all in the mood. So if you would watch this short little uh, clip. Did you know? <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's a it's a crazy wacky world. It's fun. It's uh, and I think uh, it was it was crazy and wacky with just these dynamics in terms of what. Technology's done, and, the, and globalization is done on the planet. But uh, add the recession into it, and, and it just makes it that much uh, that much more fun. So, want to go ahead and get started, um, Tom? Let's start with you. Uh, in terms of Tom's company, if, if you don't know, one, probably one of the most innovative companies on the planet. And if you read Tom's bio, he's, it's 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 a multifaceted kind of a, a, a bio. And, and so I think as being one of the most innovative companies, how do, how do companies breed innovation in, in, within their workforce? How do they, they create that type of an environment? Dogs. Dogs. The answer is dogs. We, I actually live, in an, work, live and work in an environment that has a lot of dogs flying around in it. We um, focus very much on our culture, so um, you know, people bring their kids and dogs to work. It's kind of an interesting place. But what I thought I would do is sort of share with you a little bit of a perspective on innovation. Uh, it's, you know, it's the big buzzword. It's the, it's the big salvation out there. Um, but I want to tell you that 94% um, of all innovation efforts across a wide range of industries are pathetic failures. And nobody will really tell you that. You know, there's lots of skeletons in the closet. Um, and the really interesting thing to know, um, if you've studied this, and I have for years, is that the lead innovators are rarely, if ever, the current players. Um, 
So this, this ought to shock all of you and, and make you all very nervous because there are guys like this sitting in a garage somewhere um, who are the most likely people around to put you out of business, not the competitors you think you have. And almost in all cases, the innovators are driven by economic forces, some constraint, some condition that is forcing them to be desperate. Uh, what, what you'll see here is, a little, and I'm going to show you some examples, is a lot of major innovation that was like literally funded on a credit card, you know, uh, cash advance basis, you know, out of a garage somewhere that became household names. Um, but I wanted to just put a little bit into perspective here with a couple of examples that some of you may, may remember and cherish. And so there was a time in, you know, the world of television where there were these things called networks. Anybody remember those? And there were three of them. And you had, like, a choice of three, um, unless you had some strange-looking apparatus that gave you UHF channels. And, you know, so imagine all the meetings that ABC, CBS, and, 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 and uh, ABC um, executives might have had, and none of them ever came up with this idea that maybe the world would like a 24-hour news channel, right? This took a guy... Ted Turner, as we all know, completely out of the blue to ine in inevitably obliterate their, their news business. Uh, many, many meetings that I'm sure occurred at the U.S. Postal Service and at, and at UPS um, about you know, how they could improve their business. Not one of these people ever, ever came up with the idea of actually delivering the package faster. I mean, imagine the embarrassment when an, an entire startup company called FedEx who obviously now has lots of competition, arrives on the scene and says, you know what, we're going to deliver something overnight, right? And, and literally, you know, caught everybody sleeping. Uh, eBay funded out of a basement in, in, in um, the Bay Area. You know, literally, one could, one could argue that the, that the big auction houses like Sotheby's and Christie's should have been in this space, should have created eBay, but again, sleep at the switch. Amazon, if everybody remembers how bizarre a name that sounded when it first came out, you know, Sears owned the catalog business, Borders sort of owned the book business, Amazon comes along and, and puts both of them to shame, um, inevitably almost putting Sears, well, putting Sears catalog out of business. Uh, PayPal, I, you know, I've talked to many people at Visa, you know, these are people that basically owned electronic transaction at Visa and MasterCard. None of them ever thought of entering the internet space and providing their own transactional system that PayPal, now owned by eBay, created. Uh, and my all-time favorite is Sony. One could argue that RCA, you know, uh, embodied in this dead dog. Um, <laughs> you know, because there was a time when everything was about, R, you know, all audiovisual was RCA. But Sony invents this thing called mobile music in the form of a Walkman. Everybody remember that from the, the late 70s? But, you know, completely failed to capitalize on it. Who did it take but a very small, and I mean very small at the time, little computer company called Apple to own the business of mobile music? Um, and, you know, the big message here is that nobody ever asked for a $350 MP3 player, right? The world wasn't, like, desperate for you to deliver this, right? Or even, you know, a toilet paper dispenser that used an iPod. Um, <laughs> These companies and these, these innovations were not derived from, you know, somebody just sitting around and going, boy, I wonder if people would like this, right? They did it in a fundamentally different way. And I'm going to, over the course of the next minute or so, give you better questions to ask. 
the, the solution to this problem, the solution to this economy is not about answers. It is about asking better questions. And I'm going to give you five, and if you want to write them down, you're more than welcome. Another good example, of course, is Starbucks. Uh, at a time, Maxwell House was the leading brand of coffee. Starbucks came in, brand new brand. Nobody had ever heard of them before. One little shop in Seattle. Uh, they now own the Star coffee business, now along with McDonald's, of course. And the point here is that nobody was begging for a $5 cup of coffee at the time, right? <laughs> we were all happy buying coffee at Dunkin' Donuts for 50 cents. Anybody remember 50 cent coffee? Right? So this is my favorite Britney picture. Uh, so the world wasn't, wasn't knocking the doors down to create these things. And the reason these companies were successful is that they started to understand that if, if this is where all the innovation efforts went over the last 10 years, and if you can't see that in the middle with that big spike, is all around product features. You know, if, you, if two cup holders are great, then 40 must be better, right? If five buttons on my cell phone and 16 functions are good, then 65 buttons and 85 functions must be better, right? We all know the, the drill here. One more thing that you add. Um, this is where the effort went, and this is where the results came from, less than you know, 2% of the projects produce 90% of the value. And where do they produce the value? Way out on the extremes. Innovation in business model, innovation in networking, and more importantly, and most importantly, where we play is innovation around customer experience, right? That's where they won. Look at the product feature result, right? That's where all the time and money went. Nothing came from it. So we tend to look at the world of innovation through this very simple ways to grow uh, diagram. It's a to, you know, we're consultants, so everything's a two by two. Um, and the, the point here is that if you're stuck in that incremental zone at the lower left-hand corner where you're trying to incrementally improve existing offerings to existing users, you know, you better just sort of fold up shop and think about it in a different way. You need to be thinking about entirely new offerings, entirely new users, or even the rarefied air of, in, you know, up in that revolutionary section. And, you know, to, to, to the point, here about Phil's point about, you know, what do you do after the low-hanging fruit? This is my favorite low-hanging fruit um, picture. But, you know, you've you got to climb a little higher in the trees, right? I mean, that's fundamentally the answer. Once the low-hanging fruit, once everything's been commoditized, and I don't know the difference between one firm and another, based, except for maybe, you know, the nice person I met, you've got to ask better questions, and you've got to ask yourself, who might rock your world? Who might put you out of business? You know, how can you rise above this commoditized flood? Um, so here are the five big questions. Um, the first one is redefine what success means. Define an entirely new metric, however you want to do it, that basically only you win on. Now, this was done, you know, quite a few years ago by Porsche. On every possible specification, a Chevrolet Corvette, believe it or not, beats the Porsche. You know, zero to 60, 60 to zero, you know, skid pad, momentum, all of these metrics, the, the Corvette wins. Porsche comes along and says, we're going to create an entirely new metric called path accuracy, right? The driver experience. That's what they sell. Corvette can't even begin to compete on that. So define a new success metric. Anticipate entirely new user needs, right? So this is a tough thing to do, and, you know, there are people out there that can help you do this, but you really can't just go out to your clients and say, what would you like? You know, we, we don't actually ever do focus groups. We think they're completely irrelevant. You know, nobody's going to give you a good idea on a 
in a focus group. They might be able to help you evaluate a good idea, but not give you one. So how do you anticipate entirely new user needs? How do you reinvent your business model, right? While everybody's you know, digging in deep and trying to figure out how to cut costs, and you know, who might you, you know, kind of cooperate with? Could you get together with your competition in a way that's other than an, than, other than an acquisition or a merger? You know, could you figure out entirely new ways to, you know, produce, to produce capital out of your, uh, your investments? Can you design a completely new client experience? Right? This is the one that I, I actually feel most sensitive about. We just actually are going through the process of moving our offices and working with folks like you. And you know, it, the experience was not a great one, right? I mean, you can, you can fundamentally offer new ways to engage clients and keep them engaged in the experience. I use the example of TiVo, which we designed, I don't know, it was like 10, 12 years ago, that gave, it, it didn't use any special parts. All that stuff existed. There was no magic, but we figured out a way to have somebody pause live television, right? Because nobody ever asked the question, do people want to pause live television? You go into their living rooms and actually watch them, you know, interrupt their, their viewing experience going to the bathroom. Maybe you can find a new experience. And I think last here is, are there lessons to be learned elsewhere? I, I love showing this picture. This is a picture out of, a pro, out of some research we did for the Mayo Clinic emergency room project. I think it was the Mayo Clinic, maybe another hospital, where they asked us to completely rethink the emergency room. We could have gone around to a lot of emergency rooms and looked at best in class. Instead, we went out on the NASCAR circuit and watched pit crews. If you want to learn something completely different about time constraints and space constraints and orchestration of you know, people, the same things that happen in emergency rooms, you've got to get out into the world and look at something different. You know, I know everybody comes to these CoreNet meetings every month on Thursday. You might learn more at a, you know, an animal husbandry conference in Utah uh, or a knitting session you know, in Glenview than you might learn here in, in a lot of ways. So you know, we, we all tend to get a little deeply embedded in our own world. You've got to expand beyond that and try to find some, some analogous ways of learning things. That's it. Tom, great questions. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll come back to some, question, some question and answer with Tom in a second, but I want Jim. Um, once an idea has been created through, through asking good questions and, 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 and maybe looking outside your, your, your usual realm, how do you commercialize those? How do you protect that intellectual property? So let's talk about both of those issues. And I'd like to start with a question. Putting patents aside, how many people here believe that they've come up with, somewhere in their lifetime, a great invention or idea? Raise your hand high. So two things. One, you see who raised your hand. If you're looking for conversation starters after dinner, ask them what it is. But, but secondly, I teach this subject both to professionals, to college students at the University of Notre Dame, to high school students at the Museum of Science and Industry, and to my son's fifth grade class. And, and what I've noticed is there, there's a precipitous decline in the number of hands as we get older. And that inventive inspiration or spark that is universal in fifth grade often wanes. And so what I wanted to do today is just give you some thoughts or ideas to maybe reinvigorate that inventive culture as it relates to your own business. And I think it's very much an extension of, of what we just discussed. At lunches like this or at cocktail parties, you will hear people say, Manufacturing's gone to China. 
service industries move to India. And I hear that, and I look at them, and I say, well, what's left? Right? And there's no quick answer. But what's left is an innovation economy, an intellectual economy. And it's not just good ideas. It's ideas that you can protect. Because if you can't protect it, it will soon move to a lower cost marketplace. And I'm just going to briefly share with you some data from the S&P 500 because I think it's telling. I think it's confirming that the market's always right. And I think it's overlooked. In 1975, if you were the CEO of a billion dollar public company, you would open your financial statements and you would find $830 million worth of stuff. Property, plant, equipment, cash. And the marketplace gave you a very tiny premium over what you could just go out and buy if you were more efficient with it than your competition. We'll transfer to today, even after the correction of 2008. And the economy is completely inverted. Today, if you run a billion dollar corporation, you only have $250 million worth of stuff. But the market has given you a much higher value based upon your intellectual property, your brand, your customer relationships, your intangibles. And we really now have transitioned to a knowledge economy. And that extends across every industry, including yours, as I'll, as I'll show you. So what I'm going to talk about for you know, five or six minutes is protecting your ideas, what are some of your options, give you some illustrations of what's happening in real estate, or has happened, and then kind of share with you some things that are uniquely going on in Chicago as it relates to commercializing innovation. So for those of you who raised your hands and had a great idea, what did you do about it? What should you have done about it? And the first and foremost lesson is write it down. Write down what your idea is. Write it down in detail. If it requires a drawing, make the drawing. Date it. Sign it. Have it witnessed. Send a copy to your lawyer. Whatever you want to do to demonstrate that, in fact, that was your idea at a particular moment in time. The creation of a classic inventor's log. It, you'll be shocked at how few professional inventors still yet fail to take this basic step. It's also just a great experience. Even if you're never going to go and file for the patent or start the new company, to go through the exercise of getting that creative idea out of your head and onto paper is often very productive as it applies to what you do every day. Second point is, believe it or not, you can simply take that document that you wrote, fill out a simple form, send it to the patent office as a provisional patent, and they'll essentially timestamp that you are the first inventor. Um, Congress is looking to change the law such that it's that timestamp that will make all the difference, meaning the first to get to the patent office will get the patent in the United States as it exists in the rest of the world, whereas today it's a much more complicated process to determine who really first invented. I would also say for those of you who are coming up with new ideas in your business, there's a soft aspect to intellectual property. It's not simply filing a patent, but it's getting the domain name. It's using the trademark, filing for the trademark protection, um, service marks or copyrights. There's a lot that you can do at essentially no cost in order to begin to protect your innovation. If you share it with somebody, mark it as confidential or share it under a, a non-disclosure agreement, which you can download off the web for free. And then ultimately, if it's an idea you really want to pursue, you probably do want to file a patent around it. And that probably is either a design patent, as the name would suggest, covering the ornamental design, or a utility patent on the invention. Here's an example. They mentioned uh, I've got a 10 or a dozen patents or so across a variety of, of opportunities or industries. 
this one was a consulting project with a client. That is not rocket science, right? A few years ago, we were using Bluetooth devices, and the brilliant idea was, why don't we integrate it into the sunglasses so when you put on your glasses, it's always there and ready. That's now a product that you can buy through Oakley and through others. Simple idea, wrote it down, commercialized it. And how do you do the commercialization? Some of this is, is obvious. You can license your idea. It's amazing that you can just take your great description and your, your documents and you can go to industry, you can go to the marketplace, and I'm making it freely available. In some ways, it can be complicated. It's complicated if you want to make the dance of, I want you to buy this, but I'm not sure I can share it with you unless you sign all these restrictive agreements. But if it's very open and straightforward, um, it can be very successful. You can sell it, and we'll talk a little bit about markets for that. You can contribute it for equity in a new position. The, uh, the last two, though, are most important. Um, I don't think you can overstate the value of contributing or bringing your new ideas and innovation, even if you don't call them such, when you're building your career within your existing firm or you're looking elsewhere for a career. You know, to, to compete for that promotion, and you're the one that's documented new ideas on how to move the company forward and to talk about that innovation that you're contributing as opposed to cost efficiency uh, or other aspects uh, can be highly beneficial. And then lastly, you can practice it. You can go build the factory and start to make the sunglasses and widgets. That's called inventoritis. Um, we try to discourage that because usually people who are really great at inventions are not so great at building factories. And if you try to do it all, it can be challenging. Moving to real estate briefly, I did a quick search before I came over, and here's two quick examples. There is a design patent on a real estate sign. You can somewhat see it in the uh, drawing, and if you get a design patent, basically you're the only one that can manufacture that, but any changes to it, any meaningful changes, in, it's available for anyone else. Here's an example of a real estate patent that was filed very early in 1989, basically on a graphical interface to look for real estate available for sale. So you'd go to a computerized map, you'd punch in the neighborhood, and up would come the, the various listings. Today, I believe, I would suggest that that's probably a pretty valuable patent. That's something that can make a difference early on or is probably now widely licensed. And if you search from Google patents to OTI.com to others, this will just give you some sense of within the real estate industry, which I don't think people immediately equate to Silicon Valley style innovation, there is a lot of potential for innovation. And there's a lot of potential for innovation that can be protected to differentiate your business strategy. So whether it's an appraisal method, a way to find buyers and sellers, a display system, disclosure reporting, the swap accounts at the end was actually a Merrill Lynch invention, or simply games, uh, there's clearly opportunity. What I want to do, though, is tell you a little bit also about what's happening in Chicago in the innovation space. Because Chicago, about three years ago, decided that they were going to create a traded exchange for intellectual property, much like the Board of Trade, the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, or the Climate Exchange Trades Carbon Credits. And so now there's a group of individuals and companies in Chicago that are working together to make that a reality which I think will spur a lot more creative, inventive reputation and thought in the city. The first element of that was a rating report. And in the mortgage industry, I'll tell you just a quick thought. 
In the 1980s, everybody's mortgage was nothing more than a way to buy a house, right? Because if we all had a $100,000 mortgage, our home value to our mortgage amount is different. Our salary to our mortgage payment is different. Our history of paying our credit card bills is, is different. So Wall Street wasn't really able to commoditize that, package it into what became famously or infamously collateralized mortgage obligations. But the big change in that industry was credit reporting. So if I had a credit report of 750 and you had one of 800, that would allow you to commoditize it. Suffice it to say simply the same thing is now happening with patents and intellectual property. Auctions such as auctions for real estate are now happening for patents, trademarks, and copyrights. And there are equity indexes that are now build, being built that will trade on a dedicated ex platform or exchange for IP. So it's a very exciting time. It matches the market demand for innovation, matches the current economy. My last comment and then I'm done is our only connection to the real estate business is we were able to negotiate the space on your elevator uh, displays. So when you're next in the elevator and you see the market report and you'll see the, the Dow, the NASDAQ, and the Ocean Tomo 300 index will be reported. Um, highly, highly effective form of advertising. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. I wondered who did the sunglasses and who did yeah. those uh, elevator things. Um, what I'd like to do now is to talk about a few examples of, uh, hold just a second. Okay. Um, we're not in mine. You want to pull up number four? And just hold for a second. Okay. What I'd like to do is, is talk about some, some different innovations from, from a standpoint of uh, terms, from materials, from design, uh, maybe some organizational uh, innovative things I've been seeing, and, and then some tools. Some of these have been around for a while, but others of them have been around but have now a new twist to them where they've, they've put in innovative tools around, around the uh, product. Uh, the recession has been tough on commercial real estate, as we, as we all know. And I think the, the, the toughest part of it is the fact that, that it's created very strong opposing forces. Um, you have market, rea if you're a property manager, you have market realities, and you also have financial debt uh, realities that, that are, they're all, both seem practically immovable. From a uh, corporate real estate executive standpoint, uh, you have this desire to amortize the high uh, construction costs. And I think the contractors in the room would, would say, well, geez, it seems like our fees are coming under a lot of compression. But the overall cost of, of, of the construction, a labor still in the city of Chicago is $72.50 an hour with benefits. Um, the, the cost of, of the electrical and technology has just gone through the roof. So that there's a desire to amortize that over a longer period of time, but then you have the realities of the opposing force within your business that, that operationally you have a very short-term window in terms of understanding of, in terms of what your business is going to be, what it's going to become. That requires a, a high degree of flexibility, and yet it's opposing to a longer term. Um, but we're seeing some great, I think, examples. From a lease-term standpoint, Trading face rents for flexibility. The last recession, the thing that I believe is different in this recession than the last one is, I remember, I don't know how many people here remember, I remember net negative $4 net deals um, uh, being done around the city of Chicago. Those aren't being done today. And part of the reason is because the buildings can't refinance their way out of 
the trouble to make the pro forma. And so the lenders are taking a, a, a much more interest role in, in, in the ability to service that debt. So we're seeing, still seeing fairly high face rents on a relative basis, but we're seeing a tremendous amount of flexibility being built into that, that we can trade for those higher rents. Uh, contraction options, expansion options, termination options, um, a lot more participation and partnership between the landlord and, 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 and the tenant. In terms of innovative materials, here's one that's, that's, that's been around a little while, the demountable walls. If you're not familiar with them, uh, go over to Jenner and Block, the new space, and see, see the way they've um, utilized demountable walls. Slow start in the city of Chicago, uh, implemented elsewhere faster, probably slow because of electrical unions and, and the, the ability to drop wiring through, through conduit. Um, see if I can work this. As you know, they slide, there, there's a, uh, a channel here that the wall fits into. You carpet all the space, and then it's got little legs that, 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 that hold the wall in place. If you want to change it, it's like Legos. If you want to move this door frame here, you know, it's, it's basically move the wall over and, and pop it in. If you want the panel to be glass, part of the glass, part of it um, a fabric, part of it wood, part of it uh, dry erasable wall, you can do that. Tremendous amount of flexibility for doing uh, change management and, and churn within your space. I think the, the, the interesting thing, though, is, is what Dirt and Desk Inc., you can go to the next one, have taken this tool. Okay, I guess I can do that. Um, first, first off, take a regular CAD diskette that comes from, from your architect, pop it in, and it will automatically allow you, at that point, to start uh, playing what if with the space and changing and modifying it and, and, and converting it directly to demountable walls. The next thing that they've done, which I think is pretty innovative, is they have an estimator based on that program that was just created. And it, and it takes the conventional cost of a, of a drywall stud wall and compares it to a demountable wall. And so you start calculating return on investment. So it's not just the tool, but it's the how to use how to use the tool and how to justify it within within your management system. Some cool things in terms of design. Um, Erickson Institute. Uh, if you haven't been there, very very neat space. Gensler did the design on it. Traditionally, when you're trying to build growth into into the space, you you would look at maybe an adjacent space, adjacent suite that, that, that you control through options or through rights. What, what they did at Ericsson is they actually built the growth where the growth was going to be needed, but they did it by leaving the face of the, of the, of the office, in this case, off and, and, and turning it into flex uh, touchdown space. Uh, I was over on Thursday taking picture of this, and, and I had heard the the students out of that space. I mean, it's, it's inexpensive. It's future growth space, but, but it's, it's a utilization of that space today. In terms of tools out there, um, Ron Carlson, if you know Ron Carlson from Partners by Design, uh, he's developed this auto program tool for that, that really is a huge aid for at the front end of of projects in terms of developing the strategic uh, uh, plan, 
developing the budget for the plan, developing standards across the organization, and then establishing benchmarks that, that, you, can, that you can measure the performance of the GC, the, the, the uh, design team, the project manager against. I think a problem in our industry is everyone talks about performance-based compensation. The problem is, how do you set the benchmark for, for, for where it should be? This is an excellent tool for that. So basically what you do is you put in, you put in your head count, you say what kind of business that you're in, you, you talk about a level of finish, you put in what type of furniture systems that you're going to use, either generic or if you're going to use a particular manufacturer, they're in their database. Um, you put in basic uh, sizes for uh, executive offices, for, uh, um, for cubes and such. And if you're confused on that, you, you, can, you can click on examples of it, and it will show you uh, uh, how that is impacted. Then the program takes over, and it, and it, has, it has all the labor rates for, uh, I believe there's several hundred cities in, into it. It has current labor rates, and it will calculate the rentable square footage with actual circulation, and, as well as uh, put together the budget numbers. So that's the first step that it does. It then takes it, and you can say, if I were to do this as a LEED certified, what would be the additional cost to that program that was developed to be LEED certified? If I want to be silver certified, how much more would that be? And it's calculating both the difference in terms of the materials as well as the fees uh, by city that are, that are being uh, mandated for for the consultants in the, in, the, in the lead preparation. The next step that it does, oops. That was it? Oh, no, there it is. The, the next thing it does is we'll take the, it will take that lead uh, cost and, and it'll compare it to uh, actual science for productivity, for what's the addition of, of uh, what's the impact of natural light on, on productivity. So it takes the window line and will calculate the productivity enhancements. It'll calculate uh, energy savings, electrical savings, HVAC savings, and calculate the return on investment for that investment at different levels. So pretty cool. Great tools and things that I think in the past we've been kind of guessing on. We say, well, we want to be LEED certified. What level? Well, if we, if, if we can get a, a silver, let's get a silver if we have enough points. This puts the real financial justification to it. Um, Software is available. You can, you can uh, very low cost. I think it's $50 a month to use this type of a software. Abbott's using it. A number of, of commercial clients are using it. And basically, it's out there almost for free to use. In terms of organizational structure, I think some innovative things. Dan mentioned that the Transwestern was the best place to work this year. And some people have asked, you know, why is that? And I, and I think it's a combination of, of, of a bunch of things. But one of the things that, that, that we've done as an organization is, is we've, we've taken the pyramid away. Uh, the, 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 the hierarchy, and, and we feel, is a barrier to innovation. So it's a very, very flat organization. And as opposed to people supervising people, what, what we do is we actually have 
the, the functional teams that, that have responsibility for that function uh, create their own business plan, create their own uh, management system and their, and their own way of doing things. So if as opposed to telling administrators, here's who you're going to cover, here's who's going to do transportation, here's going to be here, handle supplies, here's how, how all this is going to be done, we say, here are the functions that need to be done. You guys get together, put together a plan, figure out a, a, uh, who's going to do what, what training is going to be necessary to do, how you're going to manage yourselves, go do it. And um, it's amazing when you turn that over to people. They do so much better job than people who are so removed from that. So I think that's been a big piece of it. The other thing we've tried to do is remove the barriers organizationally of physical barriers as well as organizational uh, barriers. At Transwestern, we don't have silos. We don't have operating units that have their own P&L, their own measurement system, their own comp system, and to basically try and uh, declare revenue as, as, as their own and, 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 and compete within other areas. Uh, we scatter people around and we basically put teams together based on the needs of the client. And that's very seamless, very easy to do, and, and partly because they're physically separated, partly because they're not organizationally set up as a silo. Everyone in Transwestern works for the client. And, um, uh, uh, we don't supervise, we do, we do very little management, we do some good planning, but we push it all down in, within the organization. And I think it makes people happier, I think it makes people feel like they're more part of the team. Um, finally, I think in terms of uh, uh, just innovation out there within our industry, and, I, and, I, and I, Tom, I loved your idea in terms of going out to, to other industries and the example of the, of the, of the NASCAR race team. Um, but I do think CoreNet, in terms of sharing of information and sharing of, of innovative ideas, you know, is, is an area back to the days of IDRC and, and fast, fast forward, is the area where we tend to, within our industry, get an awful lot of good ideas. So I want to thank the uh, CoreNet team for having us. I'm going to open up for Q&A. I wanted to ask you guys, and I'm thinking out loud as I'm trying to think about innovation here, but um, to take that big picture view of innovation that you started off with, it seems to me that if you go back and you, know, you read history even, you see that periods of great innovation oftentimes occurred when there was a culture of innovation that, was, um, that you could observe. And oftentimes that was driven through enormous public patronage, government support, business support. A couple of examples from history, if you look at, for example, the period of the Renaissance between 1350 and about 1600, you look at the Industrial Revolution between about 1750 and the early 20th century, enormous growth in wealth, enormous growth in prosperity. Um, and even in the 1980s, when we had the whole computer revolution, you know, the Reagan administration cut the, the corporate tax rate from the 90s into the, back to the 30s, releasing enormous wealth into our economy that was able to be tapped into venture capital and, and various things that were, uh, I think, able to support the technology that was being developed at the time. I'm not sure, as I look around today, if 
how we're doing as far as having a culture of innovation. Do we support our artists? Do we support our scientists, our, you know, our technical people? Are we providing the environment where innovation can flourish? Um, or is the onus on, the, on that person that you show, that image of the guy in the basement doing it on his own and, and hoping that he can, get, can incubate this technology and, and, and bring it to market? Great question. Who wants it? Um, you know, I, I would say, like, for me, it kind of comes down to um, a culture's permission to fail. And, um, you know, in those historical references you made, I think what's common to all of them is that there was, there was sort of, there was, a, there was a will and a desire to change and almost a, a sort of effortless, you know, desire to, to, to move into new arenas, change paradigms. I mean, nothing in a way keeps us back further, you know, more than the current paradigm. And so what I see time and time again within organizations that are, that are sort of set up to innovate versus not, and by and large, many of them are set up not to innovate, is that they've, they've developed a culture, whether it's through organizational hierarchy or management structures or the very, their very metrics of success. They've set up a culture where no, no one, everyone's just afraid to take a risk. Nobody wants to stick their head above the cubicle for fear that something, you know, really bad will happen. You know, we, we have a, a completely opposite approach, which is, you know, we actually, in virtually all the work we do, whether it's a product, a service, an environment, whatever it happens to be, you know, our entire approach is about failing early to succeed sooner. So we actually want to make a lot of really crappy prototypes early on in order to learn something to get it right faster and with less risk involved. And most corporations actually, and, and most people I talk to, whatever role they have in the organization, they sort of want to do the perfect thing first. And doing the perfect thing first is the riskiest you can possibly be. And so I think ultimately it's about a culture that embraces failure and knows how to recover, to build, to ideate, to you know, continually iterate on an idea in order to get it right. And, and that's, that's embodied perfectly in the mad scientist in the basement, right? That, that person, male or female, is, is, is just almost delusionally uh, adverse to any notion of failure. They just keep doing it over and over and over again until they get it right. I would only briefly add to that that irrespective of the cultural motivations today, there is a global momentum to innovate that is just accelerating rapidly. And you could look at that as one measure by the increasing number of patents that are filed in the U.S. But you look at a country like China that didn't even have a patent office until 1985, and last year there were more patents filed in China than there was in the U.S. for the first time in history. And we had a 200-year head start. You look at company, uh, countries like Japan, uh, for example, where their prime minister has now identified innovation as a national asset to build upon because they don't have more land to grow and they've lost a lot of their advantage in consumer electronics and automotive manufacturing. So they're turning to innovation as a product. And, and I think that will tend to overcome any cultural distribution uh, that may exist. Yeah, I, th I think from a more, as, as important to the, to the cultural or political or social would be the financial. Um, you know, the old uh, necessity is a father of, in, of, in, of innovation. 
I was at IBM for 15 years, and, and I remember uh, it, one of the jobs I had was I was, worked with John Akers closely, and he made the comment, he said, nothing's more dangerous to an organization than, than extended double-digit growth. And by that he meant it hides so many evils, it, it gets people complacent, it gets people unwilling to make, to make innovation and to make change. And that, I think, seeing businesses fail, seeing uh, compression within the, um, the, the money and the, and, and the resources available is, is a good thing in terms of, of, of sparking innovation, or can be. Questions? Um, so where I'm at right now, one of my big tasks is trying to develop a new client experience. And I was wondering if you had any ideas aside from what is obvious but perhaps undone in terms of you know, being responsive, being innovative, being a strategic advisor instead of just a service provider. Is there anything specific or, or new that falls outside of just doing what you're supposed to be doing? Hmm. Well, this question is best answered with a wheelbarrow full of money. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure I can give you a direct answer. I can give you a hint to where you can find it. And that is at, that while talking to your, to your existing clients is valuable, um, talking to people that failed to select you as a client would be more valuable Talking to people who are not clients at all would be, you know, equally valuable. But not talking to them and actually, you know, living with them and trying to understand, you know, their needs in a different way. What, what, what is fundamental to most innovation is the, the, the fulfillment or satisfaction of a completely unmet need, an unexpressed need, an unmet need, you know, the classic nobody wanted a $350 MP3 player. People... Um, you know, didn't, you know, don't want all these features on things um, like a cell phone. They simply want to be able to talk to somebody, right? So it's about communication. So I would, I would kind of reverse the question and, and not necessarily be always, you know, wondering, for example, you know, how might Twitter or Facebook be applicable, you know, to our industry or, you know, th that, those are interesting questions. The better question is what, what are people doing that, that somehow there's no technology, system, social media that helps them do it, right? The people that developed Twitter, you know, did it, you know, you know, based on a deeper understanding of human behavior, and people just figured out what to do, right? They weren't trying to solve a problem necessarily. So you have to kind of turn the question around a little bit. The, the, your talk is, is very uh, inspiring, I think, for entrepreneurs and for employers who want to change the way they're doing things and, and maybe have an impact. But as you expressed yourself, and many of us have seen, that employees today, because of all the layoffs and, and constriction of companies, employees generally are are afraid and they do want to stay below the radar screen and I've spoken to many employees who normally are outspoken and, and change agents but today they're afraid that you make too much noise you're gone so what what do you have to say to people like that workers who m have that in them and may have great ideas but are really afraid that if they peek their head above the crowd it'll be chopped off 
Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between making noise and kind of making music. So, I, you know, I would say that what I see is a lot of people who, you know, are are always critiquing the system. They, you know, they they have a they have uh, less to offer in terms of a better way, but more to to be critical of about the prevailing way. Um, so it may be that if they shift modes into it, in a, and become more generative in their thinking and less evaluative, less critical, but more, you know, sort of become idea engines as opposed to just currently, you know, putting down the, the status quo. I mean, that, that's probably one solution. I, you know, on the other hand, I, you know, I can, you know, I might ask that you take a look at all the people that have you know, lost their jobs, been laid off, et cetera, and, and see if there's anything common to them. And it's likely that they were keeping their heads just as low as everyone else, right? So you know, maybe by sticking your head up, you, you don't become a target, but you could theoretically become safer. I mean, we have the belief that a, a recession is a terrible thing to waste, and that we're going to focus on execution and cost management, and providing that service to the customers. But ultimately, we believe we have to innovate in part back to growth. And so letting the staff know that that is part of management's direction and that those ideas are most likely to come from the employees who are on the front line every day and you're receptive to those may perhaps breed a little bit of encouragement. Any other questions, anybody? Okay. Thank you all very much. Thank you all for taking the time. Let's give an announced round of applause for Jim, Tom. Don't forget to uh, fill out your uh, surveys. We appreciate your feedback and uh, stay dry out there. Thank you.